episode 23, The Bloody Benders. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a February 28th, 2006 podcast from the Kansas State Historical Society. In this bi-weekly podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. In 1873, 11 bodies were unearthed from a farm near Cherryvale, Kansas. The farm belonged to the Benders, a mysterious family that became the state's first serial killers. While examining a knife linked to the final victim, assistant registrar Nikayla Zimmerman explains the sensational story that involved a powerful politician, an enchanting seductress, and a hot air balloon. Was this dagger the missing murder weapon? or a butter knife at the wrong place at the wrong time. And later in the episode, you'll hear some listener feedback, and we'll play the first round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, The Benders. Good afternoon. Michaela Zimmerman, Assistant Registrar at the Kansas Museum of History. I'm going to ask you some questions about the bender knife, which is basically a murder weapon, correct? Kind of, A murder weapon that looks strangely like a butter knife. (laughs) The Benders were an infamous family that lived in Kansas in the 1870s. Before we talk about their crimes, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the family and uh, what they were doing in Kansas? Sure. Um, The Benders were a family that um, came to Kansas in 1869 or 1870. Um, The father and son came first. They were both named John. And after they built a house and kind of set up the homestead, they brought the mother and the daughter to Kansas in 1871. And strangely enough, the mother and daughter, both named Kate. People who lived in the area at the time swear that the son John and the daughter Kate were actually married. Um, Oh, yeah, <laughs> and well, not really brother and sister married, but like married, married. Anyway, uh, and other another possibility is that the mother and the daughter Kate were the only two that were actually blood related; that they were actually mother and daughter. Um, several theories, um, very few of them indicate that they were actually a family. They may have been a group of outlaws that banded together just to go around and commit crime. And Kansas may not have been the first place where they committed crimes. Um, so, yeah, they set up the inn in around 1870, or they set up the cabin around 1870 and turned it into an inn and a grocery store. It was basically a one-room structure divided down the middle with their housing in the back and the inn and the grocery store in the front. So uh, just a good old family, maybe related, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, just like any other immigrant family in Kansas came west, maybe for a fresh start on right. the surface. But, you know, other stuff was going on behind the scenes. You said when they built their house, they put up a divider. Uh, what what was the divide? Like they built a wall? No, the divider was actually just a piece of canvas, like you know, like artist canvas uh-huh. or wagon canvas that would have been. Um, it was stretched across the center of the room. Um, so now we'll get into uh, the, their crimes. What uh, what was it that the Benders are infamous for, and what was their modus operandi? Um, Well, the Benders are known for being serial killers and quite possibly one of the first documented serial killers. Gosh. Yeah. um, It's thought that 
when travelers came to the inn and they stopped for their evening meal, uh, they would sit down at the table, which was up against the canvas. And then while they were being served their meal, Kate would provide a distraction while one of the men whacked the person on the back of the head. And in the floor underneath the table was a trap door. Yeah, but that's not the worst part yet, is it? No, no, not yet. So the trap door underneath the table would be open. The body would be dropped down into a stone cellar, which was under the house. In the cellar, the throat of the victim would be cut just to make oh sure, just to make sure that they were dead. And then, after the body had been stripped of its valuables, it was taken to the orchard outside the house and buried. That's a little morbid. A little bit, yeah. I mean, we're kind of making light of it, but but I mean, these really happened. Yeah, and we call it a cool thing, but it's not necessarily cool like in the standard sense of the way we look at cool right. things. Right. Um, it's interesting because I think because. Um, it was it was fairly well uh, publicized, right. and the whole event sort of took on. I mean, even today, it it became very uh, like romanticized or very um, embellished. The story appeared not only in local papers like in Topeka and Lawrence and Leavenworth, but it also ran in Harper's Weekly, which was a national paper. Really? Yeah. So a lot of people read about it. A lot of people knew about it. And that was reflected also after the murders happened in the fact that people throughout the United States thought they had seen the Benders. Of course. So, yeah. But, yeah, it was a very well-known case. Um, The Benders, they killed multiple victims. Um, But it was the death of their final victim that sealed their own fate. Uh, Who was their final victim, and why is he significant? The final victim was Dr. William York, who was a well-known physician from Independence, And so he went to Fort Scott to visit family. On the way back, he is thought to have stopped at the Bender Inn, and from there, he goes missing. Um, He's significant because he is the brother of Colonel Alexander York, who was a member of the state legislature. He was a senator from Montgomery County. Mm -hmm. So while the Benders had been killing off travelers over the course of two years, there were people just passing through. Nobody really paid attention. It was a dangerous area to live in. It had recently been open to settlement. And so not, not necessarily a lot of established law. So yeah. not that it was crime-ridden, but crime, uh, theft, and disappearance, not no. necessarily hugely unbelievable. Right. It would have been a fairly common occurrence until people who were local started disappearing. The fact that York was the brother of a senator probably you know, helped move along the case a little bit. How is this knife connected to the Bender murders? Well, this knife was donated to the museum by the wife of Edward York. Her name was Elizabeth York. Um, Edward was another York brother. At the time when um, William York went missing, he and his brother Alexander started a search party to look for their brother. And he was at the inn the day that the bodies were discovered. Uh, Supposedly, the knife, he removed the knife from a clock that was found in the house. And it's not known whether it was owned by the Benders or if perhaps it was owned by one of their victims. But supposedly he did take it from the house. And the inventory of things that were found in the house, there is a knife. It's described as a knife slash meat saw. And obviously this knife doesn't look like much of a meat saw. It's more butter knife than meat saw. It is. And it's, you know, you look at it and you got to wonder, could you cut a throat with that? You know, it's a little questionable. Um, They also found a German Bible and three hammers in the house. Oh, the hammers. The? The hammers. hammers. Yeah, the whacking hammers. <laughs> that's pleasant. Yeah, yeah, that's what, you know, obviously they left in a hurry. They didn't even bother to hide the murder weapons. 
Do you think that that's a little interesting, though? Like, I mean, essentially, they left the murder weapons. I mean, if yeah. the knife is a murder weapon, you know, they left the hammers and the knife. What? Yeah. Well, what? thank God CSI didn't exist back then. <laughs> a bunch of knuck- knuckleheads. <laughs> okay, so you say that there's a question that this knife, you don't think it's really the murder weapon, but Nikayla. It's got three drops of blood on it. I'm serious. There's seriously three red round drops of yeah. something on there. Yeah. I think it's got to be blood. Do you think it's blood? And if it is, where did it come from? I, I don't know if it's blood or not. It looks suspiciously like blood. It's dried a little bit red, and I don't know. I don't have much experience with dried blood. I think of it as being a little darker than that. But if this was something used in the kitchen, it maybe maybe it came from some meat they were cutting up or something. Not human. <laughs> oh, it's from meat. You know, a cow or something. I don't know. But yeah, who knows? It's very interesting, and I think it adds a nice element to the whole mystery of it. It kind of continues that whole Bender folklore. Um, you said that an inventory, uh, an inventory done when they had found. Um when they found the house. And, and they've discovered victims as well, right, at the house? Yeah, when they, uh, when well, when they became suspicious that it was the Benders, the Benders had disappeared and apparently had been gone for quite some time because a young boy in the community um, had noticed that the house looked abandoned. He went and kind of poked around and found emaciated and dead livestock in the barn. Pleasant. Yeah, really pretty gruesome. Again, so, the Bender farm. Fun place. Yeah, good place to hang out. Yeah, happy times. Uh, So they started looking into it, thinking maybe the benders were the next victims. They kind of started thinking otherwise when they found the cellar that had dried pools of blood and smelled disgusting. And they actually pulled the house up off the cellar because the men, when they started going down in the basement to investigate and look for bodies, the stench was so bad, no one could stand to be down there. So they lifted the house up off the foundation and uh, never found any bodies there. And strangely enough, it was Edward York, as, as the legend goes, who was sitting on his wagon and was looking over the property and noticed a depression in the ground near the orchard and kind of wondered what was going on with that. So they started poking around in the orchard, and they actually found William York's body first. And when they pulled him up, the back of his skull was smashed and his throat was slit. The hammers. The hammers. So then they also they called in um, William York and Edward York both to make a positive identification that it was their brother. And so once they found that body, they started looking um, a little more closely at the orchard and using sticks to poke into the ground to find places where the soil was not solid. And that's when they found the rest of the bodies. The benders were never apprehended, were they? No, they were not. And they they were convicted but never brought to justice. But there's stories about what happened to the benders. Yes. Um, Can you tell us some of those stories and tell me which one is your favorite? Okay. Well, what is known um, about the benders' disappearance for certain a ticket agent at a train station in Thayer, Kansas, reported selling them train tickets going from Thayer to Ottawa. They got on the train in Thayer. They never showed up in Ottawa. And there's different theories about what, you know, they got off the train at Chanute and headed south or, you know, wherever. But from Thayer, no one knows for certain what happened to the benders. Sightings of the benders were pretty pretty popular at the time. Um, any rural town where a family moved in consisting of an older married couple and a younger son and daughter were the benders. And people were you know, sending telegrams to the Labette County Sheriff saying, hey, we've got the benders here. Could you come and pick them wow. up? Um, others believe that John Jr. and Kate escaped to an outlaw colony in West Texas. and lived Sorry, there. what? 
An outlaw colony. What is an outlaw colony? It's like a, a little town that's just full of outlaws. And supposedly this town was so bad, there was no lawmen that could control it. So it was just run by a whole bunch of, right. of bad guys. But um, my favorite of all the stories, though, was told by a captain of a Mexican vessel named the Anita, which was sailing on the Gulf of Mexico when a storm came up. And during the storm, a hot air balloon crashed to the deck of the ship. Oh. <laughs> I know, crazy. Oh, where's the skill? Right? Yeah, well, in the balloon were the vendors. In the basket oh, of the balloon no. were the vendors. The um, parents and Kate were killed upon impact, but the son was mortally wounded and survived several hours, during which time he made a deathbed confession. Oh! <laughs> and in the confession, he said that his father, in the old country, had been a ship and balloon builder. And that while the family lived in Kansas, they came under suspicion for harboring horse thieves. So dad built the balloon and they flew to freedom (laughs) until they reached the storm in the Gulf of Mexico when they crashed into the Anita. Of course, the son then, after making the deathbed confession, dies and conveniently the Anita sinks, taking all the bodies down with it. Wow. Okay. Well, Nikayla, thanks for telling us about the Bender Knife. No problem. Reader response. Uh, this is the section where we're going to get some feedback from you, the listener, and we're going to we're going to read it on the air. We we haven't done this before, and uh, to be honest, I don't know if we're going to do it do it again. But uh, I like this reader's response so much, I thought it needed to be uh, brought up um, in episode twenty two, State Stump. I accused chainsaw sculptor Wild Mountain Man Ray Murphy of resembling a homeless man. Uh, well, luckily or unluckily. Mr. Murphy uh, happens to be a listener and has an update for us. And uh, Curator Blair Tarr, since you're the one who got me in trouble, if you listen to episode 22, uh, you're going to read Mr. Murphy's response. Actually, he was very nice in his response. He goes like this. Hello, Merle Riedel. I live in Eastbrook, Maine, and have my business as a chainsaw sawyer artist in Hancock, Maine. I lived in Rapid City, South Dakota when I went to Topeka, Kansas. I did do a lot of traveling with my art, doing several shows and artwork for several people in different states. The pencil with my name was done in Colorado, where Ripley's Believe It or Not did their first story about me. Oh, by the way, I have never been homeless. I am a family man who still works hard and at one time did a lot of time on the road. Thank you, Ray Murphy. Sorry, Mr. Murphy. Yes, we're sorry. Uh, we do appreciate you contacting us. Uh, this is a shortened version of your email. You actually did give us some additional information about the chair that we really appreciate having. So thank you very much. Now it's time for a little game I like to call Six Degrees of William Allen White. I have someone here helping me explain how the game's going to work. Uh, this is Nikayla Zimmerman. And Nikayla, uh, you actually came up with the idea for Six Degrees of William Allen White, didn't you? Did I? You did. I'm brilliant. So here's basically how the game works. I will give you, the listening public, an event or a person, and then you email me with the chain of connection between that event and William Allen White. So, Merle, for those of us who don't work, or for people who don't work at the Kansas State Historical Society, who is William Allen White? Basically, William Allen White was a Kansan. He was born in Emporia. And after attending uh, the University of Kansas, he operated the Emporia Gazette, which was a small-town newspaper um, that actually received national readership after White 
published his famous editorial, What's the Matter with Kansas, which kind of swept the country. It was, it was really famous. Um, that uh, piece of writing actually shot White into the national political scene. And from there, he hobnobbed with the likes of Teddy Roosevelt and Warren G. Hardy. And he was really connected with a lot of the presidents and a lot of people in government and power, positions of power. Um, but he was still a journalist. And so his journalism took, all, took him all over the world. He, went, uh, he reported from the battles, battlefields of World War I, and he even witnessed the signing of the Versailles Treaty. Um, later, White campaigned against the Ku Klux Klan when he ran for governor of Kansas in 1924. Um, as an editor, he critiqued uh, works of famous authors like um, Edna Ferber and Henry James. And, oh, yeah, by the way, he also won a Pulitzer Prize. That's it? Yeah. Well, but now back to the game. So here's an example of how the game works. And, Nikayla, you're going to be our first contestant. This okay. is just to show the public how the game works. Um, I'll give you the challenge, and you connect William Allen White uh, to the event. So the first challenge is connect William Allen White to The Shining, which is a book by okay. Stephen King. William Allen White and his family vacationed every summer in Estes Park, Colorado, like many Kansans did. Correct. Their cabin was, and currently still is, just down the road from the Stanley Hotel. Stephen King stayed at the Stanley Hotel while writing The Shining, and in fact, the Stanley Hotel inspired the book's haunted Overlook Hotel. So there you have it, William Allen White to The Shining. That's quite impressive, Nikayla. Amazing. That is really good. So this week's official challenge is connect William Allen White to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. You can email me email me your chain of connection, your theory of how they're connected. Just send me an email at podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcast with an S. That's a wrap for episode 23, The Bloody Benders. Return in two weeks when Bob Kekheisen, the museum director, uses a set of Lions Club pens to explain the subliminal messages hidden in L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Are the flying monkeys a fear-induced form of mind control? If so, mission accomplished. This podcast is a production of the Kansas State Historical Society. Oh,